You know, uh, Dave and I had a really good talk over there on the break. Probably one of the most spiritual talks I've had in a long time. And I so appreciated it. But something funny happened while we were over there. See what he just did with his hands? I got lifted up. I think he's Italian. <laughs> well, we, well, I noticed when we were over there talking, and he was, you know, doing this a lot. And I thought, I wonder what this conversation looks like in the back of the sanctuary. They probably think he's yelling at me or something. <laughs> but it was a great conversation. You know, you, you may, may not know this, but uh, I think the closest ethnic group on the planet to Jewish people are Italian people. Yeah, no, I, I think so. And uh, I like you, brother. Give me a hug. <laughs> so while they're cleaning up their stuff there, let's give them a little more love for leading us in worship this morning. Brett, do you need a hand with that? All right. Um, so while they're cleaning up, uh, Jose told you about Wednesday night, how we're canceling our services and we're going to join Beth Sar Shalom here. Please don't forget if you want to eat with us afterwards, to sign up in the lobby because we want to have enough food. Last event, uh, last week, 50 people signed up, 100 showed up. We had to do a store run to get more food, but we can't do it because that was just snacks. This is actually going to be dinner, and it's going to be kind of ethnic foodie. so you might want to ask what we're having before you sign up. You may not like bagels and locks and that kind of stuff, knishes and stuff. Tuesday night, Beth Sar Shalom is having services also. So what we're doing, it's Yom Kippur. So Tuesday night is the night of reflection, confession, and repentance. So if you would like to join us on Tuesday night for a time of just deep soul searching and rededicating your life to Christ, I would encourage you to take the extra effort, take another night out of your week, as hard as it is, just give it to God. You will not, in my opinion, be sorry that you did. Because we don't corporately do that enough as a church, where we come together with some liturgy, and we just pour our hearts out to God and say, please forgive us, we've, we've kind of messed up this year. And then on Wednesday night, it's a celebration of Thanksgiving for forgiveness. So it's kind of like Tuesday night's the gospel given with repentance, Wednesday night's the gospel received with Thanksgiving. So we, I would encourage you to come to both events if you can, if you can possibly do so. Um, if you have children, please call. Make sure we have childcare. I think we do, but I want to make sure that we do. All righty. Um, my wife and I moved to uh, Tucson right around, I don't know, was it 1990 that, that year? And it, first we moved into an apartment, and then we bought a really inexpensive fixer-upper house from the guy that owned the house because the bank would have never given us a loan. So we made payments to him. And we fixed up the house, and then we sold it, and the market went up. And we were able to buy a nicer house. And we held on to that for a few years, and we sold it, and we were able to buy a nicer house. Investing in real estate used to be a smart thing to do. <laughs> I even got a real estate license. And it got to a point where I knew, I don't have it now, but I knew the contracts, you know, and I, I knew what they said, and I was comfortable with them. But if you buy a house for the first time, the contract can be daunting. It's pages and pages of legal jargon. and oh. But even worse than buying a house to me is buying a car. And I don't want to offend anybody, but I have had less than pleasant experiences with car salesmen. 
I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just the way I look. They see sucker written on my forehead. But I'm always wondering who's trying to lie, cheat, and steal from me. And I feel like I'm being manipulated the whole process. And then I read the paperwork, and it's like, how about this? I give you money, you give me keys. Done. No, you got to fill out this paperwork and that paperwork. And it's very difficult and very confusing. Why do we have to go through that to buy a house or a car? Because in our culture, a handshake just doesn't suffice. A contract is the most solid way that we have in our culture of making an agreement. Um, it makes sure that honesty isn't an issue because everything's written down. Also, for clarity. Like some people say, ah, oh, we don't need to put anything in writing, I trust you. Well, I trust you too. But my memory sucks, and yours probably does too. And you might have misheard me, something I said. I've miscommunicated with people all my life, and they've miscommunicated to me. Let's put it in writing just so we make sure we're not miscommunicating. So for honesty, integrity, and for communication, contracts. Well, I guess humans have been this way since almost the beginning, because we've had contracts as far back as we have history. We have treaties and covenants, but they're just other cool words for contracts. God has honored the human approach of doing things, and he has made contracts with people. In the Bible, several of them are mentioned. But there's three key contracts in the Bible, and I'm going to share them with you this morning. Now, most people call them covenants, but that's just a fancy way of saying contract. The three main contracts in the Bible are known in theological circles as the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and the New Covenant. The contract God struck with Abraham, the one he struck with Moses and the children of Israel, and then the New Covenant, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So we're going to look at them one at a time, and I'll give you some information, and you're going to see the significance of them by the time we break up this morning. Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. If you didn't bring one with you, there's one in the pew in front of you. If you've got one on your phone, just make sure your media volume is off and feel free to pop that one open too. The reason I'm having you open, yes, I'll have it up on the screen, but the reason I'm having you open is because I want you to know where it is in your Bible. So you can always go back to it if you want to. It's a key covenant. And here's what it says, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, leave your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Five things about this covenant. Now just hang with me. It's all going to make sense before too long. Five things. First of all, land. God promised Abraham and his descendants land. Go to the land I will show you. That was the land of the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, land of the Philistines, the Canaanites. So it was called the land of Canaan. But you know it today is Israel. Now the land that Israel owns today is a fraction of the land that God promised. That's okay, it's all part of his plan. But today, Abraham went to the land of Israel. That was the land that God promised. And he said, I will make you into a great nation. Okay, so he promised land, and he promised people, because that's what you need for a great nation. The people we call Jews today, which is funny. How are the Jews a great nation? We've never been the largest, yet we've been the most influential. We've always been small, 
but we've been eternal. It's amazing what God has done with the Jewish people, all because of this covenant. One land, two nations, three, I will make your name great. Fame or influence, both. That's the third thing that God promised Abraham. I'm going to give you a huge nation with lots of people, and I'm going to make you famous. Also, the fourth thing, protection. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. You follow Abraham's life through the Bible, and he was miraculously preserved by God because God promised a nation. He had to preserve him. You can't have a nation if Abraham gets whacked. So Abraham's preserved miraculously. And not only that, but the, the blessing's gone down to his descendants. God has preserved the descendants of Abraham as well. And then the fifth thing, he offers to make Abraham a blessing to the entire world. All people on earth will be blessed through you. Now, how is that fulfilled? The land was Israel, the Jewish people, the protection of Abraham, um, the influence or fame. You know, influence or fame. Abraham may be the most famous person who's ever lived. Now, you're probably thinking, Jesus is the most famous person who ever lived. Well, maybe. Depends on how you look at it. You realize that Abraham is the patriarch of the Jewish people, the Christian people, and the Muslim people. A huge portion of the world's population for centuries have called Abraham their man. Now, the Jewish people aren't much interested in Jesus, though the Muslim people respect him as a prophet. But remember, Jesus came 2,000 years ago. Abraham was already famous 2,000 years of time before that. So he may be the most famous person who's ever lived. God said, I will make you famous. Man, when God makes a promise, he makes a promise. And Abraham's been famous for over 4,000 years. It's stunning. But then he says, I'm going to bless the whole earth through you, Abraham. How does he do that? It's answered in the book of Acts. Listen. You are heirs of the prophets. So this is Peter talking to the nation of Israel. You are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, your descendants, descendant, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant Jesus, he sent him first to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. The promise of the blessing, how Abraham would bless the whole world, was by his descendant, Jesus who's a blessing to everybody. So God made five promises, kept five promises, and is in the process of keeping some of those promises even to this very day. So God established his relationship with the Jewish people by the Abrahamic covenant. That's the significance of the Abrahamic covenant. Now you're thinking, Steve, I'm not Jewish. What does that have to do with me? Well, you'll know before you leave. But for now, where would you be if it wasn't for Abraham? No Abraham, no Jesus. So it does have something to do with you, even on the surface. God established his relationship with the Jewish people, all believers of all time, via Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. What's our part of the covenant? See, a covenant, a contract, is like two parts. You promise to do this, I promise to do that. That's how it is. You give me $1,000 a month, you get my house. For the next 30 years, you stop, you owe me interest. That fails, I get the house back. It's a covenant. You do, I do. You get, I get. That's how covenants work. So what's the deal? God says, I will bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you. In those days, they didn't have paper contracts. That wasn't the main way they did covenants. They, they had clay and stuff like that. Not long after, they had parchment. But their covenants were different. They would take an animal back in the days of Abraham and cut it 
like a sacrifice and put one part on the left and one part on the right. And the people make it, in fact, it's called in the Hebrew to cut a covenant, to cut a contract because they cut the animal. And then they'd walk between the two parts. And that was their way of sealing the deal. It was their signature. So Abraham laid out the parts so he could walk through and shake God's hand, you know, on the covenant, and God put him to sleep. And it says in the scripture that a burning torch went between the parts, but Abraham never did. It was kind of like God saying, you know, I got this one. It's on me. Don't worry about it. You don't have to do anything. Because if it relied upon Abraham, and Abraham was going to be the guy who brought Jesus, then Jesus' coming was out of God's hands and into Abraham's. Not a good idea. So God just took the whole thing, put it on his own shoulders, said, I, I got you. He did tell Abraham, though, there was a sign for the covenant. All his male children had to be circumcised, and their descendants and their descendants on the eighth day. And that was the sign of the covenant. All right, so that's the Abrahamic covenant. But there's another covenant, the Mosaic covenant, which also dealt with the Jewish people. And the question is, well, if the Abrahamic covenant was there, why even need another covenant? And I'll talk about that in a minute. But before we do, I want to give you a, a for instance about a covenant, a contract. If I told you in all seriousness this morning that I needed an assistant and due to the generous nature of a wealthy person I know, knowing I needed an assistant, he wants me to hire the best. So he's given me a lot of money so that there's competition for the job. And the job pays $100,000 a year. Now, if I were to tell you that, how many of you might be interested in a job that pays $100,000 a year? Shut, shove your hands up. Yeah, it's going to be hard to pick. There's a lot of people who'd want a job like that. But I'm not easy to work for. I'm not just going to hire anybody. I need somebody good. And there's a contract. Blake, would you be interested in this job? Yes, sir. Come on up. Let's talk about the contract. If I can get you to stand behind my table over here. Okay, so a job for $100,000 a year interests you? Yes, sir, it does. All right, well, let me tell you what the contract entails. Then you can tell me if you'd still be interested, okay? In order to work for me, like I said, I'm a cruel taskmaster. I'm fair, but I want you there Sunday through Friday, 7 a.m., not 7.01 a.m. If you show up once late, you're fired. Okay. Can you handle that? Yes, sir, I can. Okay, you're going to work six days a week. You're going to work seven to five. Every once in a while, you'll need to stay later, but I won't do that to you all the time, and you'll have every Saturday off. I will never ask you to work on a Saturday, okay? Like I said, it does pay $100,000 a year. You will do anything and everything I ask you to do. It's my assistant. Um, nothing immoral, nothing illegal, nothing that will challenge your integrity, but if I say I need something done, you're not going to question me. You're just going to get it done and get it done well to a professional, excellent standard, and if I give you a deadline, you'll meet it. If I say this has to be done by next Thursday, you can't come up to me Wednesday night and say I'm not going to have it done. If you do that, you'll get $100,000 a year. Sound agreeable? Yes, sir, it does. Okay, one thing more you should know. I'm willing to give you a lot of money to do a job that most people would do for half that amount, even less. So if you break your agreement with me within a year, you show up late, you decide not to come in, you fail on a project, you owe me $10,000. So I'll give you 100 but if you fail, you give me 10. Deal? Yes. All right. I need you to sign. 
at the X. Excellent. And at the X. And at the X. <laughs> See you tomorrow morning, 7. Thank, Thank you. you. How many of you would have agreed to that contra contract? Let me see your hands for 100 grand. Some of you would have. The rest of you are like, no, I can't do that, Steve. It ain't happening. Let me see. How many of you have ever been in late to work? Let me see your hands. Oh, you're all fired. <laughs> and I get 10 grand. Or have called in, just said, you know, personal day, sick day, you've been sick, you didn't want to come in. Let me see your hands. Yeah. Or have turned an assignment late or not gotten it done. Let me see your hands. Yeah. See, this is a hard contract. Listen, it's not unreasonable. This is what every boss wants. This is what we get employed to do. It's not wicked. It's not wrong. It's just hard. Actually, it's more than hard. You just can't do it. So God called the children of Israel together and he had a contract in stone. And he said, you're going to do this, 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 and this, and I will bless you, bless you, bless you. Agreed. Here's what they said, Exodus 24, 7. Moses took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Let me tell you, it wasn't just the Ten Commandments. By this time, it was in a book, 613 of them by the time it was all said and done. But the children of Israel didn't care. They knew it was good. They knew it was just. They knew it was right. They wanted a relationship with God. And they agreed to do everything God said. But the problem isn't that God said anything unreasonable. The problem is they couldn't do it. Maybe their attitude was right. Maybe they wanted to do it. But they could not do it. They were in breach of contract. God is loving and just, but he's also hard to work for. So that kind of left the children of Israel in a quandary. I'm going to explain to you the solution to that quandary in just a moment. But I want to talk to you about why God made a second contract when he already had one with Israel. Why did he make another one? Why the Mosaic Covenant? What was the point? Well, there's several reasons. The first, this Mosaic Covenant, this contract gave national Israel guidance, a constitution, laws. When you read through the Old Testament, you will see ceremonial laws and religious laws, sure, but you'll see civil codes, health codes, building codes, foreign policy. So Abraham, hey, you're going to have a nation. Now, what's the nation supposed to do? There's the Mosaic Covenant. There's your constitution. There's your rules. There's your regulations. This is how I want you to run your nation. Okay. So one reason we needed the Mosaic Covenant is because we needed those guidelines to run our nation. There's something else, though, even more important from our perspective today. The Mosaic Covenant taught a very important lesson to Israel that they could not have learned any better way. It taught Israel about sin. Romans 7, 7 says this. I would not have known what sin was except through the law, the Torah, the contract, 
the covenant. I would not know what sin was without the covenant. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, don't covet. So God gave us a contract that was good that we couldn't keep. And the end result was it showed us where our shortcomings were. Well, why is that important, Steve? Well, let me tell you something. You're not going to look for help unless you know you got a problem. God wanted to help us all. You know, if somebody came up right now and said, Andrew, I've got the cure for cancer for you. And Andrew's great. I don't have cancer. Have a nice day. If he thought he had cancer, he might be interested. But you go out, go, go down the street, take a sin survey. Ask people, do you think you're dying in your sin and going to hell? They're going to say no. You think you're separated from God and lost forever? No. They don't know they got a problem. So God now has a relationship with Israel, and it's not just enough to tell them they have a problem because they're not going to believe it. you got to show them that they have a problem by giving them a good contract that any reasonable person would say is good, but somehow, for whatever bizarre reason, we can't keep it. We want to, we try to, we fail, we fail, we fail. The Abrahamic covenant shows us that God cares about us and wants to have a relationship with us. The Mosaic covenant shows us that there's something in the way, something keeping us from having a right relationship with God. The Mosaic covenant gave national Israel guidance. The Mosaic covenant taught us about sin. But if that's all it does, how good, how good is that? Case in point, let me get out my battery here. This thing here is an electric meter. It tests electric current. And you can use it in all sorts of stuff, but I decided to bring out a battery. Now, I'm going to get down here so my microphone can pick up and see if it makes some noise here. I think it will. Uh, let's see. It's a two-man job. It's a, I need clamps or something. Okay, need one there, and one there. Uh-oh, it's not working. I think my battery's dead. Mm, is the meter working? Yeah, I think there's something wrong with my battery. Now, most of you work with batteries, right? Without the meter, if I just shown you this to you, said, is this a good battery or a bad battery? Because it looks like a good battery. No, it doesn't. It looks like a bad battery. Because <laughs> they look the same. It just, it's a battery. How do you know? you got to plug it in to know if it works. Yeah, but some things take like 10 batteries. What if just one of them's bad? That's why you need a meter of some sort to find out which is the culprit so you can chuck the battery and get a new one. This meter will tell you if your battery's good or bad, but it won't fix your battery. You know, you go to the um, mechanic and says, you know, my car is doing wonky things. It's, it's not running right. They plug it into this computer thing, and it runs your car, and then it gives a printout and says, well, you need to change your, you know, your fuel filter and your O2 sensor shot. And when's the last time you had a tune-up and, and you're, you're not getting enough oxygen and how's your air filter? So that diagnostic machine will tell you everything that's wrong with your car's engine, but it can't fix it. So what good is the thing? Well, it is good because you need to know what's wrong so you can fix it. The law of Moses is the Multimeter. It's the diagnostic machine. It shows you the problem. 
But here's where people make the mistake. They think by trying to keep it all, you can fix it. You can't fix it. The law of Moses was never intended to fix sin. It was just intended to show you the problem and show you the solution. Not give you the solution, but show you the solution. Listen, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law points us to the solution, doesn't give us the solution. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. That was Galatians 3 and Acts 13 that I just read for you. So the Abrahamic covenant established Israel's relationship with God. The Mosaic covenant taught Israel that her relationship with God was not sufficient because of sin. And the Mosaic Covenant taught her they needed a savior from sin, that he would come and die for them sometime in the future. That's what the Mosaic Covenant did. Now the third covenant, which is called the New Covenant. I don't think it should be called the New Covenant. I mean, the Abrahamic Covenant is named after Abraham. The Mosaic Covenant is named after Moses. The New Covenant is named after a new guy. It should have a name to it, doesn't don't you think? The Messianic Covenant. Because the Jesus Covenant doesn't sound right. So Messianic has a nice word, ring to it. The Messianic Covenant. Now we've been going through Jeremiah. The Messianic Covenant is mentioned. The New Covenant is mentioned in Jeremiah 31. That's where we're at. Let me read to you what it says. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, even though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. All right, four things I want to point out to you about this specific covenant. First, it's a brand new covenant. It's called a new covenant. Now, in some circles, um, messianic, some messianic circles, for example, they say, no, that's not what it means. It means it's a renewed covenant. God's going to reestablish the Sinai covenant with the Jewish people because they broke it. We still have to keep the Sinai covenant. No. Every major Bible translation translates that as new None of it tra translated as renewed. But what do you know? I mean, you don't know Hebrew. For all you know, it should be renewed. So when somebody comes and says it's wrong, how do you know? Well, here's how you know. You just look at the context. Here's what the context says. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers when I took them out of Egypt. So this new covenant is obviously a new, different covenant. You don't have to know Hebrew. You just got to read the English. And it gives you the context. Usually with the Bible, that's all you have to do. When people say, oh, the word means this or the word means that, you don't know Greek, you don't know Aramaic, you don't know Hebrew. You don't have to. Just read the context. Listen, I've studied Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, for a couple years. I went through Bible college. I could work with the language back in the day. But the number one tool for me was not the lexicon. The number one tool for me was the book that told me where all the words occur so I could look at them myself and see the context. Then I knew how the words used in the Bible. 
you can do the exact same yourself. Just see how the word's used in context. So four things. The first thing, it's a brand new covenant. The second, as I've already pointed out, it's not associated with the Mosaic covenant. Israel broke that covenant. Contract's no good. You broke it. You're fired. Third thing, this covenant is spiritual. It's written on your heart and on your mind. Moses came down with Ten Commandments on stone, already saw the children of Israel breaking them, and he threw them down and he broke them, which was really symbolic of what they had just done, what I just did with the paper. Covenant's broken. Well, this covenant's not going to be a covenant of stone. It's a covenant of heart. It's in your soul. You can't tear that one up, and you won't want to tear that one up. It's in you. It's not on paper. You don't need the paper because you long for this covenant. It's not something somebody's got to convince you. You want to do what's right. It's spiritual. It's written on our hearts. And the fourth thing about the new covenant, it's instituted by Jesus himself. The Abrahamic covenant was instituted through Abraham. The Mosaic covenant instituted through Moses. The new covenant, the messianic covenant, wasn't just instituted through Jesus. It is Jesus. Listen. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. When we take communion, we're remembering what Jesus did for us, that his blood is what makes the new covenant a reality. Now, let me mess with your heads for just a minute, just because it's fun and I can. And I think you'll benefit from it too. But I threw this question out to one of my classes a few weeks ago. I said, where does the New Testament start? Everybody's like, Matthew. And I said, no, it doesn't. I'm like, what do you mean it doesn't start at Matthew? Ends at Malachi, starts at Matthew. This is the new covenant in my blood. It starts at Calvary. At Calvary is where the new covenant starts, when Jesus said, shed his blood. That means the first 27 chapters or whatever of Matthew should be considered Old Testament. That's why Jesus said the rabbis and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they say, do. Just don't do after their behavior. That's why Jesus and his disciples kept kosher and kept the Sabbath because they were still under the Old Testament. Now, we divide our Bible into two parts, and we call the first part the Old Testament and the new part the New Testament, but that's not the proper designation because the New Testament is initiated and instituted through Jesus' death and resurrection. So really, we should say the New Testament starts when Jesus died and rose for our sins. All right, three primary covenants in the Bible. The Abrahamic covenant the Mosaic Covenant, and the Messianic Covenant. The Abrahamic Covenant establishes Israel's relationship with God, our relationship with God through that. The Mosaic Covenant gave national Israel guidance. The Mosaic Covenant taught us about sin. And the Mosaic Covenant points us to the Savior from our sin, Jesus, who instituted the New Covenant. So, 
Under Abraham, I said, what was our part? And I said, nothing. God's got this. He stuck it in his pocket. Under Moses, what was our part? The part was huge. We had all 613 things we had to do in order, and we couldn't do them. So what's our part under the new covenant? Remember, covenant's got two parties. Contract. What does God do? What, is, what do we do? What does God do? Sends his son. Jesus dies for our sin, rises again, and offers us eternal life in a sin-free, beautiful environment forever. That's his part. What's our part? Let me read to you. Jesus said, Most certainly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Our part is trusting him. Our part is believing in him. When I say believe, I mean believe. I mean with all your heart, soul, and mind in Jesus. And biblical belief is biblical trust. You entrust your soul to him. Now, it didn't say it in that verse, but it says it in others. When we come to Jesus, we make a decision. It's either him or everything we want to do, good or bad. We have to choose to reject the bad in our life. That's called sin. Now, we don't always know what sin is because we're not that familiar with the Bible. It doesn't matter. What matters is, are you willing to put God as the head of your life? And if he says don't, you don't. And if he says do, you do. Are you willing to make that commitment? That's our part. But Jesus and faith in him, that's in his pocket. So it's a sweet deal. You know, the deal I made with Blake, $100,000 sounded good, but you knew you couldn't do it. What do you got to do with Jesus? Nothing. Just ask him to save you and trust him to do so. Believe in him. That's what you got to do. That you can do. All the other stuff, ah, don't worry about it. It's in his pocket. He's got it covered. If you've not made a covenant with Jesus, if you've not joined into the new covenant, given your heart to him, I'd encourage you to do so. It's a sweet deal. It's the best contract this world ever has to offer. There's nothing to compete with it. What's keeping you from taking it? I'd encourage you to take it now. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you. It's a sweet deal. I've already signed up, as have many of the people here this morning. But perhaps there's some here this morning who have not made the decision to join your team, to follow you. I know you love them. I know that you love them enough to send your son to die for them. I pray that you would bless them, speak to their hearts, call them by name. And I pray that they would listen that they would be done with doing things their own way, which leads us nowhere. I pray that they would believe in Jesus and choose to follow him. Amen.